0: No, it's fine. I okay. mean, you know, you're just shutting down
1: thought, but... <laughs> <laughs> you're closing this curiosity door. <laughs> closing this door of curiosity.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Todd Mack.
2: And I'm Joseph Strowski.
0: And today we're talking about Holden Caulfield from Catcher in the Rye.
2: Old Todd. How are you doing, old Todd?
0: (laughs) I feel like I can't quote any of this book on the air.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It is is a profane book. It's riddled. (laughs) Riddled with profanity would be a good way to describe that. (laughs) You can can call me a phony. (laughs) I
0: know, but that's rude.
2: (laughs) I, I can take it, Todd okay uh i i do want to mention that this book is a request from our patron bailey so thank you bailey for being a patron of ours and also for suggesting this and listeners if you would like to suggest any topic for us you can do so uh just by shooting us an email at feedback at protagonist but if you want to be sure that we will cover it as promptly as possible you should become a patron by going to patreon.com slash protagonist podcast as bailey did
0: Okay, so if any of you are unfamiliar with Catcher in the Rye, it's a story about an extremely depressed kid that's in high school, and he wanders around New York City, and we get his stream of consciousness. And that's pretty much it.
2: Yeah, it was published in 1951 and written by J.D. Salinger, who did not write very much else. A few few other things, but uh, this is the one that he's definitely most known for, and this is the kind of book that if you get it out there, you could just live off those royalties for the rest of your life anyway, <laughs> so you don't have to be writing a ton of other things. So uh, how did you come to
0: Catcher in the Rye?
2: I cannot remember if I was actually assigned to read this in high school, but I know I read it in my undergrad, in my grad school, and then I read it uh once after grad school and then I read it again for this podcast today. So this is at least my fourth, maybe my fifth time reading it. Wow. Bless your soul. <laughs> That's it, I, have to it, say. I love this book, Todd. I think it's a really good book.
0: <laughs> okay. Um I I can guarantee you that we did not read this in high. You and I sh- basically took every English class together from 7th grade until the 12th grade, and I don't think we ever read we I know we never read Catcher in the Catcher in the Rye. So unless you took some of the class, you didn't read it in high we school. We
2: weren't. I, I think we've already said we were not always in the same class because you had a very different memory of The Outsiders than I did. <laughs>
1: oh, yes, that's true.
2: <laughs> I forgot. Uh, for sure, I didn't read it in
0: seventh grade. So anyway, I, I didn't read it in um, in high school. I, I didn't read it in college. I didn't read it in grad school. <laughs> I read it uh, over the last couple of weeks. And I have to thank Bailey for um, giving me this opportunity to read this book i um i have really really mixed feelings about this <laughs> and i have i still don't know what i think about it but i'm really excited to but
2: not it. knowing what you think about it i think is
1: a pretty standard response <laughs> to catch her in the ride can i yeah. can i tell you guys or my Mr. experience Andrew wants to share his experience i i read it in college uh in a class called the american novel we read this we read huck finn we read moby dick Basically the, the canon of American Yeah, like culture. like eight novels. Uh yeah, sure. that were all considered like this might be the great American novel. People say it might be it. Great Gatsby, was that one? Nope. Oh. That <laughs> wasn't in there. Uh Dennis Cutchins taught this class, and Joseph already. you you know him. Yeah. Um but we got to this one and this was probably my least favorite one. I was just like this is the worst book we are reading in here. <laughs> and I ended up really liking Moby Dick, and other people thought that was the worst book we read in there. But I didn't I didn't enjoy a single minute of it until someone came to class and said, hey, guys, I found a shirt online and the shirt reads Holden Caulfield thinks you're a <laughs> phony. <laughs> and as soon as I heard that joke about this book, I was like, OK, I'm glad I read this book. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of good uh,
2: jokes that you'll start to get after you've read this. It's one of those that maybe is percolating around, but you don't notice it. Uh, until you, you've, uh, really engaged with it, uh, to get some of the jokes. So one of my favorite recent jokes that I've come across was, and we'll have this link in our show notes, uh, uh, there was a filmmaker in New York who made, what if Zack Snyder adapted various classics? Uh, and he did a, it's like a one to three minute version of Zack Snyder, and Zack Snyder is the director of, uh, Superman versus Batman, which we, um, we discussed in a quick cast in the past. <laughs> Uh <laughs> he, he has a very distinctive style. And they did what if Zack Snyder directed? Uh Catcher in the Rye, Sense and Sensibility, and The Giving Tree. <laughs> the Shelf Silverstone classic. <laughs> and they're all just like ultra moody lighting and and screaming into the rain and slow-mo shots. Um <laughs> and I, I just enjoyed uh enjoyed that uh unexpected connection between <laughs> Catcher in the Rye and the st- the cinematic style of Zack Snyder.
0: I will say that I knew absolutely nothing about Catcher in the Rye
2: before I before I
0: read this novel. Like, you could have told me I mean, if you had asked me what it was about, it could be about Baseball. Baseball <laughs> or airline pilots or fish swimming in the sea. Like I I mean I knew absolutely nothing about it. And I I think it's so enjoyable to read something just completely fresh like that.
2: Um Especially when it's something that you like has a status that makes you know of its existence, but you've never really engaged yeah. with it in any way. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh Today's podcast is brought to you by audible.com and you can get a free audible audiobook download and 30 day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash protagonist. But Todd, as you discovered, there is no audio version of catcher in the rye is there.
0: There is no audio version of Catcher in the Rye. You have to slog through all two hundred and eleven pages.
2: I'm going to go ahead and take some umbrage with your use
1: of the <laughs> verb "slog." That's a pretty loaded term, especially. I mean, that's not the longest novel yes. you guys have had to do. No,
2: there, there's a not. Li- there's a linguist uh, named Hayakawa who talked about uh, in in rhetoric. There's the use of snarl words and per words, and I think "slog" is a snarl word. Todd, you're showing your hand. <laughs> I am showing my hand. This is I
0: I um. I, I, I don't I don't even know what to say. I just <laughs> it's it doesn't read really like poetry to me.
2: But uh if you want something that does read really like poetry, there are over 180,000 other titles for you to choose from if you go to audibletrial.com/protagonist and please do that listeners. Uh before we get into our synopsis and then our uh, discussion about this, a little bit of trivia. Uh, catcher in the rye is one of the most commonly assigned and most commonly challenged books in schools in 1960. A teacher was fired for assigning it though he was later reinstated in 1981 it was reportedly both the most censored book and the second most top book in all of american schools <laughs> <laughs> and it is really frequently on the american library association's list of most challenged books uh, every year the american library association releases a list of uh the books that get the most requests to be banned or challenged right
0: next right next to a wrinkle in time
2: and uh huckleberry finn <laughs> yeah, huckleberry finn <laughs> another one of the, the classics that andrew read uh let's see Mark David Chapman, who shot and killed John Lennon. He bought a copy of The Catcher in the Rye the day that he killed Lennon, and he had written to Holden Caulfield Caulfield from Holden Caulfield. This is my statement inside of the cover, and he was carrying that book when he was arrested for murdering John Lennon. What? Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Uh, J.D. Salinger, the author of uh, Catcher in the Rye, he saw a lot of action in World War II, like a lot of the violent fighting, um, and a lot of people seem surprised that he didn't write, go write a war novel after this. Um, but some people have interpreted this as like the post traumatic stress of a soldier. Um, but now into young adults transitioning into adulthood angst. I can see that. Yeah, I can see it too. Once I heard that, I'm like, okay, (laughs) yep. Uh, I think, okay, well let me do the two other bits of trivia and then there's one I want to come back around. Uh, it continues to sell about 1 million copies every single year. So when I said you, if you write this kind of book, you could just live on the royalties. It's to this day, selling a million copies every year and more than 65 million copies have been printed. And it is on basically every single list ever of the best American novels. So I'm not going to cite them all, but just know if you look up a list of the great American novels or the best American novels, the best novels of the 20th century, catcher in the rye is on it. Um, But I think uh, the other bit of trivia, I think it's worth us explaining modernism slash postmodernism. This is definitely more modernist to me than postmodern. Uh, Yeah.
0: And I I think that that's where I, A lot of my beef comes from
2: yeah you're you're not a modernist todd
0: (laughs) um no so do you want do you want to take a stab at modernism or would you like would do you like
2: me to i I can do it and you can add anything you want to to add so modernism it really comes about after world war (laughs) one there's just a lot of disaffection with the way things are and a lot of uh creative individuals in all forms of art start saying the old rules don't matter i'm going to break all the rules and uh, you start to see a lot of nihilist, uh, kind of attitudes creeping into works, uh, questioning meaning of traditional forms, uh, where you might find meaning, and that's both, um, worldly forms like government and social structures, but also religious. Uh, Structures start to get questioned by a lot of people because of the horrors of World War One. And you start to see things like stream of consciousness get used as a narrative technique, which never had really been used all that frequently before. Um, And so, again, it's just like breaking with old forms and questioning of everything and doubting that there's a valid meaning that can be found within structures. Uh, after World War II, which dis, dis affects a whole new generation uh, of creators, you get post modernism, which kind of says there's no meaning in, ev- in anything, but we can laugh and question it all together. Uh, whereas this one's just there's no meaning in everything, but there's no laughter <laughs> when you get modernists. <laughs> Does that that seem right to you, Todd?
0: Well, mm, I think I have maybe a, a slightly different interpretation of it, so. I see modernism as like the rise of the isms, right? So we have world war one happens and everyone goes, man, that was horrible. You know what we need? We need X, right? (laughs) Like like the world is broken and there's all this suffering and sickness. You have the Spanish flu and there's a lot of people that die in the 19 teens and twenties. And, and out of that, Uh, Like the – just the sound and fury. (laughs) I mean it's like the the suffering that comes out of that time period. You get the rise of these great ideas like communism and uh, democracy and uh, different religious um, movements, and there's a lot of –
2: Searching for meaning.
0: Yeah, searching for meaning. And if, if everybody would just fall in line with X idea, then everything would be great. And then World War II happens, and we drop those two bombs, and we have the Holocaust. And then there is this like great silence after World War II in which everyone goes, you know what? Everything is really broken. <laughs> like, like really, really, really broken. And there's a long... I mean, there's – it's almost like a silence after – kind of directly after World War II, and then people start writing and, and creating stuff again. And then they – that's when I think you get the idea that there are no – there are no ideas that are worth Right.
2: I, I guess the questioning the old forms led to some attempts to – Create, but it, like you're seeing these breaks. Like I said, uh, stream of consciousness wasn't really a narrative form before, uh, and right. you see that coming after World War One. Uh, but I, now I agree that uh, the postmodernism has more of the "there's no meaning in anything, but we can still have fun while we're here" <laughs>
0: kind of feeling to it. But there is also, <laughs> I mean, if you go back into the early 1900s, you do get to like Duchamp, who essentially makes a mockery of art. And everyone's falling all over themselves to say how amazing it is that he's like signed a urinal and put it in a in an art museum, and I I, I have a lot of problems with <laughs> with like the, the idea that there is no meaning in anything and that art now is like, that like there is there is no such thing as beauty there is no such thing as goodness there is no such thing as virtue everything is whatever you want it to be. And art, and and you do get artists who are legitimately like just mocking the world, and the world is falling all over their feet, uh, or, or falling all over themselves to to praise people making fun of them. It, it's like a sad high school story or something. <laughs> and we do get that early on in the twentieth century, and it's part of modernism, and it's part of kind of this nagging feeling that I have about this novel. <laughs> But uh, but we can talk about that.
1: I, I have a question, guys. So I've always hated the name postmodernism mm-hmm. because it's just like the thing that came after modernism. Like, yes. Yeah. I, I don't care for the name. Can someone do something that is pre-somethingism <laughs> and just wait for the somethingism to catch on later? So that is <laughs> pre-modernism <laughs> and then we get the full modernist movement after <laughs> World War One. Well, no, I think someone should start one now oh, and, just and right define now it as, as pre-something. Uh, and just predicting what's coming next. And, and maybe their intent is to foment the next revolution in yeah, art I, and literature. I like postmodernism, but I 100% will agree that it's a dumb name.
0: <laughs> and I, I, I'm I'm not completely against all like modernist works or postmodern works, but um, but the, I do have problems with some of the stuff that goes on.
2: But I absolutely, like, when you situate it for when modernism became like the movement of art, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. All right. Uh, (laughs) So that's your history lesson, kids. Yes.
1: (laughs) Now now there's this book that you're supposed to talk about today. Yeah.
2: And you know what? If you want to get the book, you should do it by going to protectnesspodcast.com slash Amazon. Uh, If you do that, it'll look like regular Amazon, but you can go order, I'm sure, a fairly inexpensive copy of Catcher in the Rye, and it'll help us out a little bit. So if you're not able to go do it through Audible, because there's no uh audible or audio version of the book just like there's been no film adaptation that it was Salinger's wish that the book was just its own thing and not be adapted into other forms uh you can go buy a copy by going to protagonistpodcast.com slash amazon but right now if you're not able to do that we're still going to go ahead and talk about an entire synopsis of this novel all right Holden Caulfield is a 16 year old attending a private school in New York in 1949 well he was attending it But he just flunked out and won't be coming back after the upcoming break, uh, the holiday break that's coming up. So it's a Saturday, and the school is playing their big rival in football. But Holden could not care less, uh, as he tells us many times. (laughs) So as we said, this is kind of stream of consciousness first person. So Holden is narrating the action and giving us commentary. And you get a lot of his point of view. And I guess I should in describing this synopsis say I'm going to be giving you the beats of the action. This is not a novel about the action. It is not about plot. It is about the character. And so the way Holden describes things is more important than any of the things that actually happen. And, but in writing a plot synopsis, I can't really <laughs> give you all the ways that he's describing them. I'm just going to be giving you the things that happen. So know that your experience of hearing this quick plot synopsis is going to be very different than reading the novel through Holden's voice. Do you agree with that, Todd? Yes um so now uh the christmas break is going to be starting on a wednesday holden uh on the saturday he's already kind of annoyed because he was supposed to have a fencing tournament in new york city that morning but he lost the fencing equipment in a subway station and since he was the team captain or the team manager everyone is angry at him for (laughs) losing the fencing equipment and preventing them from you know having the fencing tournament. <laughs> so now he's back and he's he's not going to go to the football game and he's just annoyed at everyone he knows he's about to get kicked out and he goes to visit the home of his history teacher but then he gets annoyed at his history teacher for being old and also for pointing out that Holden doesn't try in school. Holden doesn't want to really hear that. Uh he goes back to his dorm room and he wears a $1 red hunting hat that he bought in New York City that morning. Holden's roommate Stradlatter, <laughs> comes in and wants Holden to write a descriptive composition for him because Stradlater has a date that night. He's not going to get around to writing it, and um, Stradlatter is getting ready for his date by shaving and cleaning himself up. But his razor is gross, and it has old cream and hairs just stuck all over it. So he's not really getting clean. He's just getting the look and appearance of being clean. So you see, he's a phony. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, is is he the first phony? Uh, well. Maybe his brother. We're going to meet a lot of phonies in Holden Caulfield's opinion. Uh, Stradlider's date is with Jane Gallagher, who is a girl that Holden knew. And even though Holden has flunked out of school, um, he was known to be good at English and be good at writing. So Stradlider doesn't want the composition to be too good. So he warns Holden, don't do, do not don't be too good at this. And we find out also that Holden's older brother was a really good writer but now he writes movies in Hollywood. So his older brother is now a phony writer <laughs> <laughs> because he was a good short story writer, but writing movies is phony. Uh, Holden just is thinking about what to write and it's just supposed to be a descriptive essay. And Stradlatter's roommate had asked that he just write about a room or a house or something. He doesn't care. And Holden writes about his younger brother's baseball mitt. And he writes, uh, or this is what we're told. The thing was I couldn't think of a room or a house or anything to describe the way Stradlatter said, uh, uh, the way Stradlatter said he had to have. I'm not too crazy about describing rooms and houses anyway. So what I did, I wrote about my brother, Allie. And I don't know if it's, it's A-L-L-I-E. And like I said, this has never been adapted. So I'm not sure if it should be Allie or Ali. I'm going to go with Allie. Or Ali. Even yeah. Ali would be an option, I guess. But I'm going to go with Allie. Uh, Allie's baseball mitt. It was a very descriptive subject. It really was. My brother, Allie, had left this left-hander... Uh, left handed fielder's mitt. He was left handed. The thing that was descriptive about it, though, was that he had poems written all over the fingers and the pocket and everywhere in green ink. He wrote them on it so that he'd have something to read when he was in the field and nobody was up at bat. He's dead now. Uh, and I just, that's one of the best passages in the book. Like, so. There's so much that you could unpack from that. Um, but anyway, Stradlater comes back. He's not impressed with the composition. So Holden tears it up. Stradlater is also dismissive about his date with Jane Gallagher. And Holden kind of uh, was protective of Jane. So they have a fight and Holden loses badly. <laughs> and he leaves Percy Prep to go to New York City where he'll stay in a hotel until his, expe- his parents expect him home on Wednesday. So his parents live in New York City, uh, but he doesn't want to go home until Wednesday. He gets a hotel room and he goes down to the bar so Holden Caulfield tells us that he looks really old for his age. He has gray hair already, and he's really tall, but he cannot get an alcoholic drink because they want to see an ID. And uh, while he's just drinking a straight Coke without any rum in it, he awkwardly interacts with a trio of women from Seattle. Uh, they're trying to act sophisticated, but Holden sees right through it, so they're phonies. Uh, but they let him dance with each of them and pay for their, their alcoholic drinks. And then those three girls just leave, and when he goes back to his hotel room, the elevator operator asks Holden if he wants a girl sent up to his room. Holden agrees, but once the prostitute is there, he just wants to talk with her. He doesn't want to do anything else. She asks for her $10, and Holden says he was told it was only going to be $5. And the girl leaves with $5, but comes back with the elevator operator who intimidates slash hits Holden while the girl grabs five more dollars from Holden's wallet. Holden imagines he was shot in the stomach instead of punched and imagines an elaborate film noir-style revenge fantasy on the operator, uh, elevator operator who is a phony. Um, side note... <laughs> Holden uh, has asked all the cabbies who've been taking him around New York City what happens to the ducks in the pond when the pond freezes over. Uh, none of them know, and they're just phonies anyway. The next day, Holden calls Sally Hayes, a girl he knows, and he asks her on a date to go see a play. While waiting for Sally to show up for the date, Holden has a conversation with some nuns about Romeo and Juliet, and he feels kind of weird about it because he's like, oh, Romeo and Juliet gets a little steamy. <laughs> I'm talking with nuns, and this feels awkward. Uh, and then he also goes and he buys a record for the little sister Phoebe. And uh, while he's walking around New York City, he sees a boy singing a song to himself. If a body, catch a body coming through the rye. Uh, his date, Sally, shows up and they go to the play. But at intermission, they hear everyone critiquing it. And Holden can't stand it because these are all just phony people <laughs> critiquing the play. And he doesn't believe any of their uh, critiques. After the play, Holden and Sally go ice skating. And then Holden asks Sally if she wants to just go run away with him. And she points out a few valid concerns about holden's plans that he doesn't really have any that would make any sense or would be workable and then holden insults sally and she starts crying and holden feels bad about that but she won't accept his apologies and she leaves without him and after that holden he mostly just gets drunk for the rest of the day uh and then he goes to try and find out uh if the ducks are still at the pond but he falls and he breaks the record that he bought for his little sister phoebe and then sad and drunk he decides to sneak into his house and visit phoebe but do it without his parents knowing um, while he's heading there, Holden passes museum and he remembers how he likes the things that are frozen in place and in time there. He goes home and he wakes up Phoebe and he finds out that his parents are still out, so there's no chance that he would be caught anyway. She quickly realizes that he's been kicked out of school, even though he tries to deny that. And she worries that their dad is going to let Holden have it. She asks Holden if he likes anything in the world, and he struggles to find an answer other than, uh, Ollie and Phoebe, or Allie and Phoebe. Uh, and then she asks what he wants to be, and he says he likes the song, When a Body Catch a Body Coming Through the Rye. But she corrects him and says that that is a poem that actually reads, When a Body Meet a Body Coming Through the Rye. But he pretends he knew that anyway. <laughs> says that his dream job would be to stand at a cliff at the edge of a rye field and catch kids who are running around close to the edge of the cliff and are in danger of falling off the cliff. And he would be the catcher in the rye who stops kids from going off the edge of a cliff. Uh, their parents come home and then Holden has to sneak back out of his house. Uh, but he gives Phoebe his red hunting hat. Then low on money, he calls an old English teacher of his, Mr. Antolini, and Antolini asks if Holden is okay and then invites him over. Mr. Antolini and Holden talk late into the night while Antolini drinks a lot. Mrs. Antolini says hi, but then she goes back to bed. Uh, they let Holden sleep on the couch, but then Holden wakes up, and Mr. Antolini is sitting next to the couch patting Holden's head, and Holden is very creeped out by what he believes might be a homosexual advance, but he's not sure, but he just doesn't know how to act and he just runs out of the apartment, basically. And he decides he's had enough. He's leaving this life behind. He's going to move out west. Uh, he doesn't have anyone he cares about besides Phoebe. So he writes her a note that's set to be delivered to her at school saying, I want to see you one more time before I hitchhike out of New York and just go west. But when Phoebe shows up to say goodbye to Holden she's dragging a suitcase behind her she wants to go with him holden refuses to let her she cries uh to calm her down he says i'm not gonna go i'm gonna stay don't worry they go on a walk and she rides on a carousel even though she's starting to get too big for it she asks holden if he wants to ride but he says he's too big to ride on it the end of the novel tells us that holden has written the story uh one year after all those events happened and now he's sick and in some kind of institution it's left a little vague uh but he's plans to be attending school another school though which i think is gonna be the third or fourth prep school that we hear about him attending. He's going to be attending another school uh, the next September. And that is Catcher in the Rye. Okay, well done. (laughs) Again, the plot does not... This book is not about plot. If you're reading this book for plot, you're going to be very, very disappointed. This is 100% about the character and what we learn about Holden through the way that he describes seeing the world. Yeah. So let's talk a little about Holden Caulfield. Uh, (laughs) Um, when we did our Nausicaa episode, uh, we did an exercise that I came uh, upon from a screenwriter named David Isaacs, where he said, you should be able to, uh, to define a character through 10 traits. And so if we were going to define Holden Caulfield through 10 traits, let's go back and forth. We're each picking a trait at a time. What are our descriptors for Holden Caulfield, the iconic lead character of Catcher in the Rye? Do you want to go first? Depressed? Depressed. Yes. (laughs) And I think... Uh, the most interesting thing about him being depressed is that he never talks about him being depressed, really. He just uh, through some, but through his it's through his actions and particularly through his his discussion or anytime he mentions his his dead brother, uh, you realize what he's depressed about. Even if he doesn't really touch on it in like any personal introspective way.
0: He says, "I mean, he repeats over and over and over again through the novel that made me really depressed." Oh, yeah, that makes me realize. so depressing. But
2: usually, it's a like a criticism about what he's seeing, not like an yeah. introspective statement about and, himself.
0: Yeah, I mean, he he is really in a very unhealthy mental state.
2: Yes, I I agree with that. So, depressed is our first term for Holden Caulfield. I'm going to say uh, hypocritical. <laughs> okay, because uh, he will like. He'll say like this particular action that someone else does makes him so depressed, and then he will do the exact same thing like one paragraph later, over and over yes. in the book. Uh, or he'll critique about how something makes someone a phony, and then he's doing the same thing. Or like when he's talking with his sister, he says something to her, and she responds, and he says the way that she responded told me that she really listened. It's the best when someone really listens to what you say. And then she asks a question, says I wasn't listening to what she said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so depressed and <laughs>
0: I would really like to talk about this idea of uh, phony because I mean it's kind of funny, but it's also kind of annoying. <laughs>
1: like, yes,
0: to read this over and over and over again. And uh, anyway, there's a couple of things that I, we w- I may want to circle back to, and the idea of uh, phony is one of them.
1: Okay,
2: definitely. Is it my turn? Yes. Angry. Yep. I think <laughs> I think angry works. well. Uh, what about the story makes it clear that he's an angry young man? <laughs>
0: What in the story tells us anything other than that he is an angry, depressed, like, (laughs) I just, uh, you mentioned the word angst earlier. Yeah. And this is, I mean, there, I've, I've never read a work that was more
2: angsty. My only possible runner up would be Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix
0: oh not close
2: <laughs> harry is so angsty in that one yeah oh harry goodness. is angsty he's but the platonic ideal of teen angst in harry potter the order of, of the phoenix
0: yeah but
2: uh, unless he's a pale imitation of holden caulfield who is was the platonic ideal of teen angst yeah i don't i don't see these i feel uh, like two
0: works as even operating in the same universe
1: i feel like harry feels like it's a conspiracy and holden just thinks everyone's an idiot
2: <laughs> yes
1: like harry's like why is everyone out to get me? Like even my friends don't trust me. Like what's going on here? Whereas Holden is just the world's broken. Everyone's stupid. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So I guess there's
1: different kinds of angst.
0: I mean, the, the, the the nearest thing that I can think of to this is um munch's uh, the scream the painting the scream are you familiar with this
2: <laughs> i am very familiar with that one
0: so this um that it's one of the most famous paintings of all time it's reportedly the most e- expensive painting it's featured
2: prominently out. in the 1989 tim burton
0: batman film
2: joker and, likes it
0: and um, i mean if i had to put a visual to this to this novel it would be that painting it's just, it's just this one long horrible scream of pain and sadness of this sixteen-year-old kid, and that no one is hearing, and nobody hears it except maybe his sister. Yeah.
2: Um, there was, well,
0: well I, actually, I, I don't know to say that nobody hears it. I don't know that that's true because the history teacher cares about him, the Mr. Antolini cares about him, his sister cares about him. That's true. So anyway
2: but uh so when i was scrolling through uh wikipedia on this looking at trivia like gathering some of those trivia that we shared earlier um one thing that was pointed out was that this book was written and it's the story of someone before grief counseling was really a thing <laughs> that existed yeah. and they said uh so just, so it was i can't remember what, how it was pointed out but they just kind of said this is a book that explains why grief counseling is necessary <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah it really is so i think you're up
2: Okay, uh, so we have, uh, let's see, what was depressed. your... Depressed. Depressed, hypocritical, hypocritical, angry. I'm going to go with uh, in, Insightful because, I mean, I, I, I want us to come back and kind of talk about this, but some of his critiques of the world are valid. Uh, not all of them. <laughs> but some. For of the... example uh like some of the hypocrisy that he sees in the people around him like i think he's identifying some genuine hypocrisy he's also probably projecting some of his own p- hypocrisy onto others
0: <laughs> see that's what i think yes. i
2: i think that his view of the world is horribly skewed right so i have so i think there are some insights but it's not like he's a soothsayer that is you know beholding the world in a way that no one else can but i think for a 16 year old some of the insights that he shares about the hypocrisy that he sees in the world around him are are true and not all sixteen-year-olds would pick up on those things.
0: I think he's a smart kid. I mean, maybe this is maybe this is my next thing. I would say smart. I mean, I, mm-hmm. he is. I think he's not. He's intelligent, right?
2: Um, <laughs> but
0: but uh, he is so broken.
2: Yes, can we really call him? Inside? So, like, uh, for our. Possible discussion topics. I wrote down, is he really perceptive about the hypocrisy he sees around him, which would be very insightful, or is he just projecting his own insecurities onto the world? I
0: I would say that he is not really very insightful. (laughs) I mean, I think that he, like, talk about unreliable narrator. Oh, yeah.
2: (laughs) I'm not, I don't want to say like he is seeing the world for what it is. I just think some of the things that he sees and discusses are not what every 16 year old would see and discuss.
0: Sure.
2: I'll take it. Okay. So insightful with an asterisk.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to say intelligent with a big asterisk. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I- like there's potential there and this is what his teachers see and Antelini sees it and, and Phoebe sees it. And, and I think as readers, we, we can see it on, you know, rare occasions where you're like, man, if this kid would, could just get out of the dumps, there's every possibility that he could be a great writer or that, you know, that he could, it's almost like it's the promise of insight more than it is the insight
2: itself. Yes. I I, I agree with that. All right. So my next one is going to be creative. Uh, and this is both like, we're told uh, that he is a good writer, but also he gets those weird flights of fancy where like he creates this, uh, after he gets punched in the sub, like he imagines that he's, he's been shot and he's got to call Sally over to come, mend him up, and he's gonna walk around with a stitch that's bleeding still, and he's gonna be smoking a cigarette and go get his revenge. Um, and there's a couple other times where he kind of gets lost into this creative space inside of his own head, uh, yeah. instead of engaging with the real world around him.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's he definitely lives inside of his head. Uh, I'm gonna go with lonely. Y- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Holden is just terribly, terribly lonely, and completely isolated like like unattached he's d he's detached from the world and i mean it's it's like a a clinical case of of a lack of secure attachment in like the john Bowlby sense Mm -hmm. (laughs) this guy just has it's
1: been a while since you pulled that one out todd
2: (laughs) well he just i mean
0: there's nobody there and and then when people try, like I think one of the most interesting scenes of the book is when he goes to Antolini's house at the very end and Antolini, Antolini is totally sloshed. He's so drunk. And <laughs> he's so drunk. And then he gives some advice to to Holden and it's actually really solid advice. And And then Holden goes to sleep and then we get the scene where he wakes up and he's being patted on the head in a way that, like...
2: Again, we have an unreliable narrator telling us this.
0: Totally unreliable narrator, but I can imagine... I mean, I've been around <laughs> people that are intoxicated, and for some, for somebody who's intoxicated to be sitting next to somebody who they care about that's sleeping and patting their head
2: is not... Out of the realm of possibility?
0: <laughs> no, not even close. And, and Holden f- totally freaks out over this and runs away. And it's just, it's such a, it's so symbolic of his whole life, right? Like anytime he has a chance of being close to somebody,
2: he, he runs. Yeah. What are we up to? Was that uh, number five or six that you just gave us? <laughs> I've lost <laughs> track. Uh, I was going to say, uh, and this is another one that needs an asterisk, uh, but some form of loving and loyal, but it's only towards his younger siblings. <laughs> but like his, uh-huh. he is genuinely affectionate and caring towards Phoebe and, his world was obviously destroyed when Allie, uh or Ollie, uh died. Um, was he, a, was Ali a younger brother? Yeah, it's it, he, when he's okay. writing the composition, he this is my younger brother's met. Okay. Um, so like there is that genuine attachment that remains with Phoebe. And it was the severing of that attachment with Ali, uh, which is just told so brutally with that, just blunt. All of a sudden he's dead now, <laughs> which is yeah. so, just rocks. Like you understand, you start to see what has happened to uh, Holden. Uh, to to put him into this place, and so it, it deserves a huge asterisk because he just he displays no love or affection towards anyone else. Uh, but towards Phoebe, you can tell like there is a genuine relationship of uh, brother sister that is has a foundation of love there.
0: Yeah, I mean the only uh, the there are other people for whom you feel like there's a possibility of of a relationship. Mm-hmm. So um he talks about uh, well his his, te- his teacher at the beginning and Antolini. and then Jane is she kind of looms over the over the novel like a mm-hmm. like a ghost or something right um and you feel like I me mean, talks about oh I I I, I was going to call her and then I didn't and then I was going to call her and I didn't want to talk to her mom and like there's hope that he could and th- that he could be with her um, he's willing to stand up for her and get the tar beaten out of him by Stradlater at the beginning, um, which means you know that, he, and he talks a lot about how he's such a coward. But in that moment, you know, there's there's like some semblance of a spine when he's defending her. So I think that there's you know I might, might add her to the list of people that he really truly cares right. about. But I was gonna say but it's not a, it's not like a healthy attached relationship. No, by
2: any. Um, and a- I think it's also significant that he still has that attachment towards his younger siblings who are still children. And it's the innocence of childhood versus the hypocrisy of this transition to adulthood. And the hypocrisy of adulthood itself is, it, you know, what he's really judgmental about. And so he's protective and still attached to the children, uh, in his life.
0: But, it's interesting that you bring that up because he's also really kind to the kids in the, in the museum when they're looking and for the,
2: the, mom. the little girl at the ice skating rink.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. but his
2: brother who it seems like he wants respected once his brother becomes an adult and is working in Hollywood instead of still writing short stories like he did when he was in, in living in the house together and letting uh, Holden read his short stories, then his brother has become a phony.
0: Then he's a phony, yeah. <laughs> um, are we to Titania?
2: I don't know. We're, let's do one more each, I guess. <laughs> I, I think
0: I might have ran out. <laughs> I You said hypocritical. I would say he's a phony. Yeah. Like, Holden, Holden Caulfield is a phony. He's... He's, he's the biggest
2: phony of all.
1: He's trying to pretend that he's older because he's got gray hair.
2: Yes, uh, yeah, well, uh, and, he, and and he's so upset at the phonies he sees in the world, but he's a phony himself. Like he's got a double standard
1: for everything that he does. He rarely is like saying what he says. He thinks he's he call he tells girls his name you know, is Jim Steele. <laughs> Yeah,
0: um, he he fantasizes about older women and he and he has, you know, like he he calls up this prostitute like no big deal as if it's something that he's done a million times. And yet he gets cold feet and then we find out he's he's a virgin. Like, I mean, just everything about him is so
2: fake. Uh, My last one was going to be emotional. He is so emotional driven by emotion Uh, as far as, you know, every decision that he makes. It's a spur of the moment. What am I feeling at this very second? Um, yes. that, so like, even the decision to, uh, get the girl called up to his room, I think it's cause, uh, he was worried about being judged by the elevator, uh, operator. Not, you know, so he wanted to do this performative, you know, masculinity, uh, you know, right. uh, display, uh, in that moment. But it was, it was uh, the emotion of like the fear of shame of saying no. Uh, is, yeah. is what made him do that, and you know, somebody of the other, like all the fights he gets in, um, <laughs> the the running away from his teacher, like all those things are just driven by emotion, not by um, logic in any way. Okay, so I have a I have a question,
0: and th- this is a truly legitimate question. I don't, I I go, I find myself waffling back and forth on this. So w- when I started reading this novel, the first thought that I had is, this is ugly. It's it's just ugly. <laughs> um i don't i mean like the stream of consciousness it just doesn't speak to me really every once in a while there's a there's a phrase that's turned that where you go oh you know it's, that that was put in an interesting way or that the the one that you quoted earlier about the baseball glove i mean there's there are occasionally nice bits of writing in this but but it's hard for me to say that it's a beautifully written book it feels ugly to me. Yeah, <laughs> but it, but it feels ugly. So so the question that I have written down is this: Is this beautiful, ugly, or is it just ugly?
2: I think I would call it deliberately ugly. Um, so, <laughs> and I I think there's a beauty to that. Uh, Like, the the stream of consciousness and, like, the repetition of phrases like phony, uh, like, that kills me, or, you know, it depresses me when I see, like, all these things that we see over and over and over again. Like, a polished writer would not use those in prose, but we're not get, being given prose. We're given stream of consciousness, and we all have verbal tics. We all have right. phrases that are going to be repeated in our heads. If we were narrating our lives, it would not be polished prose. So, the prose is ugly, but I think it's deliberately so and is revealing about Holden.
0: Okay, so there's a piece of work uh, of art. <laughs> it's called My Bed. Are you familiar with this? I'm not familiar. Uh... My Bed is a... It, this is from the Wikipedia page. Uh, yeah. My Bed is a work by the British artist Tracy Emin. It was first created in 1998. I think I am familiar and with this. it sits in an art museum. Mm-hmm. And it's a bed that's unmade. Yes. And there's, like, alcohol bottles all around it and used condoms and... It's just like a big messy unmade bed. And it sits in the middle of this art museum and people go and they look at this unmade bed and they go,
1: oh, "This is amazing.
0: It's so it's so expressive of the human condition." And <laughs> I don't know, like I look at the unmade bed and then I look at the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> and I think it's not hard for me to distinguish between those two, which is a greater piece of art. And that may sound really, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sure that I'll lose some friends in saying that, but, but just the complete and absolute relativism of the art world in the, that comes with modernity. And I think that they go kind of hand in hand where, and, and I don't know, I think you can certainly port, point to Duchamp with the urinal, but like, <laughs> I don't know. We, we seem to be in a lot of the 20th century. It's a big celebration of ugliness. And I think there are, there are absolutely moments where I see something that's ugly and, and there's something beautiful in the ugliness or the sadness. And then there are other times when I see something ugly and I just go, Nope, it's just ugly. And, And with Catcher in the Rye, I find myself going back and forth.
2: I found... So, I've read it multiple times, and I find the more I've read it, the more I I think I find the beauty and, like, the revelations about Holden Uh that are buried within the prose. I think the first time I read it, I was probably pretty turned off and just kind of slogged through it. Um, But it's... There's a lot of classic literature where I read it because it was assigned in high school or even in college, and then I reread it later in life as I've had more life experiences. I've been married. I've had kids. I've just... I, I've been exposed to more things and I have different reactions uh, to it. And I think this is one of those examples where it's not just different life experiences, just me digging into it more and like already knowing the second time through, I'm not going to be reading this for plot. Cause there is pretty, <laughs> pretty much no plot. Right. I'm just going to read this to see what do I learn about holding Caulfield and about like the, the broken adolescents, <laughs> you know, that, that were coming uh, after these world wars and that had had, uh, like even that the, when I found out about J.D. Salinger that he was a war vet who had seen a lot of pretty horrible, horrifying things. And like, trying to imagine that instead of just an adolescent who had lost a brother. Like I, I, I had different reactions every time I read it.
0: Last fall, I went, uh, I was in New York city and I went to the Guggenheim museum and there are all of these artworks that when you look at them, they mean essentially nothing. And then you look on the wall and there's a plaque and it's and it tells you about the work of art and then you're able to realize like wow there really there kind of really is something here
2: which is and, funny because one of the movements of uh, modernism is like the death of the author and that the work needs to stand on its own be <laughs> its own thing yeah well it but, certainly doesn't yeah i know i i think uh, for me <laughs> context is pretty darn key to interpreting uh or, or gaining a, a deeper appreciation of a lot of uh, works of art
0: and and so I mean, I can see, I just, I feel like with this novel, I can see both sides where there's a side of me that just is kind of repulsed by this novel (laughs) and, and I see it and it's like, there's no beauty there. It's just ugly. And, and then even in the moments where it feels like it's going to be beautiful, like with Antolini you're like, oh man, maybe there's a chance for an insight or something, you know, like a spark of hope mm-hmm. or light in this kid's life. And then he freaks out and runs out and, and he gets nothing. like He gains nothing from that, from that encounter with Antolini and it's, it's just, man, it's hard. right? <laughs> it's a really, it's a difficult text and I can understand why, um, why people assign it and this is in no way me saying like, this is a, this is a terrible piece of piece of art. Like I can, I get value in the context, but
2: this wouldn't be like a summer read for you. <laughs> like I just want to read some, some great work of literature and relax. You're not going to pick up catcher in the rye. No, I'm not.
0: And I mean, there are other things like I keep going back to the Renaissance, but there's a Renaissance. Um, oh, she's Baroque. a Baroque uh, painter named Lavinia Fontana. And she she did lots of portraits and she's famous for doing a portrait of um this girl that had the the disease where hair grows all over your body and you look like a werewolf. And I can't remember what what that's is, called. It's called
2: werewolfism. Lycanthropy. <laughs> <laughs> um it's i do not know the name of the disease
0: extremely rare and apparently like more than one person in this girl's family had this this condition and the experts say it was like a one in a billion chance of this family even existing with this condition but she painted uh, a portrait of this girl and there's something kind of hideous uh, about it but there's also something beautiful in the way that she's been treated uh in the portrait and um it was another thing that was kind of on my mind as I was, as I was reading this and I just keep going back to that thought. Is this beautiful ugly or is it just ugly, ugly? <laughs> right. And I um, think that sometimes that depends on the reader and, and what you bring to the table.
2: Yes. It's not just like what you're willing to take out of the work. It's what, where you're at right now. I think yeah. it be, have a huge effect. Um, there's a quote that I saw in that Wikipedia page. It was from Finlow Roer from, uh, 2009. And he said, in 58 years since its publication, the book is regarded as, uh, or re- still regarded as the defining work on what it is like to be a teenager. Holden is at various times disaffected, disgruntled, alienated, isolated, directionless, and sarcastic, which are all like negative things to say about <laughs> teenagerhood. Uh, and I think that's, you know, if, if this is like becoming uh you know the representation of all of these negative aspects of adolescence and teenagerhood and and this transition period from the innocence of childhood to the you know whatever it is the hypocrisy or the phoniness of of adulthood there's a lot of ugliness that's gonna be on display,
0: and you know what i don't I don't know that I buy that i mean
2: <laughs> i yeah I don't like I had my angsty moments as a teenager, but that is not like if I was asked to just define my teenager hood. I would not do a list of those negative would emotions. Would
0: you say catcher in the rye? That was it. Like that was me when I was sixteen years old. I was just like Holden Caulfield. Like I, I, I know that there are teenagers that are like that, and I think that there are a lot of teenagers like that. And I don't want to. I don't want to minimize the fact that a lot of teenagers go through, like, suffer from serious anxiety and depression. But I just, I just think that the world is. There's more. There's more to right. being a teenager than just being angsty all the time. And
2: and I think I think the angstiness is going to be a part of pretty much everyone's teenagerhood at some point. But to have like teenagerhood be distilled down to that list of seven negative adjectives, to me, is uh, too harsh to that point in life. Well,
0: and angst is part of life. I mean, angst, yeah. is, angst isn't just part of being a teenager. Angst is part of being human. And I don't think I don't think that we can reduce being a teenager down to Catcher in the Rye, just like I don't think that we can that we can reduce life and the human experience to Catcher in the Rye. I feel like it's more complex. And if if there's if I had an I don't know, I just I think that there are that there's there's more to life than what
2: this book shows. Yes. And, I I agree. This book is capturing a particular moment in for Holden Caulfield. And I think Teenagers, uh, those that, like, um, see themselves in the book, I hope that's not, you know, all that they identify in their lives or what we're seeing from Holden Caulfield at this point. Because, like, that the epilogue where you find out, like, he's getting treatment finally, like, it's yeah. a statement that this was a broken individual. He <laughs> just followed through three days in New York City. Yeah.
0: It's, uh, it's almost like um, there are some works that are... That are universal in that they capture like all of human experience, and I mean, I'll just say it. I'm a Spanish literature professor, and so I have to say it. But like the Quixote,
1: <laughs> oh, the- Todd, I, I, Todd, Hello! the I, Quixote I, coming up, Todd. <laughs> I, I was I was suspicious that's where Todd was going to be going with this.
0: But the Quixote is such a complete work. It has it's everything. It's hilarious and it's tragic and it's deep and there's these amazing insights and it's hopeful and 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 it's depressing at times and it's just so full of of the variety of human experience and i think that there are other works that are like that um this is and then i think there are other works that achieve greatness by focusing on one specific aspect of the human experience
2: And and showing that aspect well
0: and showing that aspect well. And so if you're going to – I think it's probably unfair to hold up Catcher in the Rye to something like the Quixote and say, which is a better book? Um, I would say Quixote is certainly a richer, um, a richer book in that it, it describes such a, such a full variety of, human, of the human experience. Uh, but Catcher in the Rye certainly does a good job at capturing angst. So, yes. if you're interested in that, <laughs> then this is the book for you.
2: <laughs> right. Um, but within the angst, there, I think there's some interesting things where we see what Holden uh, cares about and, like, some of the choices he makes. So, he, his, like, well, the whole name, in kind of the Rye, and his description of what his job would be to be essentially to protect children. Yes. <laughs> and if you say that that is, like, protecting innocence and uh, purity, uh, you know, before it gets sullied, like, he he seems very interested in the idea of preserving things and we see that um like early on when it's snowing at uh Percy prep and he makes a snowball and he's about to throw it out the window but then he said no everything looks too nice when it's untrod snow yeah Right. Yeah. Like it's a perfect snow. I'm not going to throw this snowball I made. And he carries it around with him until the bus driver makes him not bring it onto the bus. <laughs> um, and uh, like his obsession with the museum and things that are preserved. And he talks about how things are like, kept in glass and they're, they're frozen in place and in time. Um, there are things that he wants clearly that, that he values that he wants to see preserved and held still. And to me, that's very interesting where he's so concerned about preserving Things when he's so clearly unhappy <laughs> with the way things are, but he wants things to stay where they are. Um, and I think uh, so much of this goes back to his brother's death. Like change can mean loss. Change can mean death. Change can mean, um, just, just gut wrenching and, and soul, you know, breaking sadness. Right. Uh, um, and so he'd rather have things where they are than almost face the risk of more, loss i think
0: it's like better the devil you know than the devil you don't
2: yeah like like because of his brother's death and what that did to him he's scared of losing anything else so he wants everything to freeze where it is even though he's desperately unhappy
0: yeah um i'm thinking about uh the idea of like knowing yourself and s- it's like self-awareness i think it's it's interesting that we read you know, a couple hundred pages of this kid's mind. I don't ever get the sense that there's any kind of like self revelation.
2: Right.
1: <laughs> um,
2: and that's one of the criticisms of the book. So I, uh, again, like as I was reading through um, things, people have said about this, someone says it's uh, like, there's no much maturation in Holden Caulfield. Yeah. I mean, again, you're seeing three days of his life and, but it's being written about from a year in the future. Uh, you know, a year later. Um, but one, one critic said that, you know, the lack of maturation for him limits the success of the novel.
1: Uh,
0: Yeah. I, I, I I think I agree with that.
2: Um, but this, this idea of the loss of his brother being so defining, even though he like barely like, like he never deals with it. He just, you know, acknowledges that this is something that happened. Um, there's a comedian that I really annoy, uh, enjoy named Patton Oswald and his wife died completely unexpectedly in her sleep uh, earlier this year. And just yesterday there was like a new news article about him and he just talked about grief. And he, like the title of the article is I will never be 100% again. <laughs> like, uh, but he says in there, um, this is a quote from that article. We'll have the link in our show notes. So the reporter says, as serious fans of this comedy know, Mr. Oswald has suffered from depression. So he's addressed that in his stand-up routines. But this, he said, was far worse. And here's a quote from Patton Oswald. Depression is more seductive. Its tool is, wouldn't it be way more comfortable to just stay inside and not deal with people? Grief is an attack on life. It's not a seducer. It's an ambush or wor- worse. It stands right, right out there and says, the minute you try something, I am waiting for you. And I think... We said depressed is a way to describe Holden Ga- um, Caulfield. But I, if, like just in our discussion, it made me think back to reading that article about Patton Oswalt talking about grief. I think grieved is maybe more accurate than depressed.
0: Well, he's paralyzed. There's a, there's a book called Writing History, Writing Trauma. It's by Dominic Le Capra And it talks about, uh, he, he brings up the idea, he's a Holocaust uh, scholar and he talks about the idea of um, acting out and working through trauma. And he says that acting out is where you just repeat over and over and over and over and over in your mind or in writing or whatever uh, the traumatic event. And there's no change. And that working through is where you, you go back over the event, but you explore other options, and that's why, for him, like art and literature are so powerful in helping people work through trauma is that they, can, they allow for people to uh, explore alternate possibilities of um, both the traumatic event and also um, the healing process. And when I see Holden, <laughs> Holden just wandering around, locked in his thoughts, um, he doesn't, like you said, he doesn't talk about his brother's death very much but he's he he, it feels like his thoughts are locked in a pattern and you see that in this in this repeated speech over and over and over again he's a phony sort of this sort of that sort of this sort of that phony 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 um what's up with the ducks what's up with the ducks what's up with the ducks right like his his it's like he's he's stuck in a loop in his mind and he doesn't break out of it ever (laughs) yeah um yeah i think i'll call jane uh oh sally she's really hot uh i think i'll call jane sally's really hot phoebe this phoebe that <laughs> it's just it's there's so much repetition in the book and it seems to be um kind of symbolic of that acting out just being stuck in a loop in a traumatic loop
2: hmm um you mentioned like the the repeated phrase sort of Sort of, there's a really good YouTube video about this by, uh, John Green. Uh, he does a series called Crash Course where he'll talk about great works of literature. Uh, John Green is, uh, we, we've actually addressed him before because we did the Lizzie Bennett Diaries and he and his brother, uh, were producers behind the Lizzie Bennett Diaries. And he's also the author of The Fault in Our Stars, if you're familiar with that. But he points out in that Crash Course YouTube video, which is like 10 minutes where he breaks down a lot about, um, catch on the right the phrase sort of appears 179 times in uh catch the right which is not a long novel actually like it's, it's, it's pretty, uh,
0: about it's all it's just a little under one per page
2: yeah and talking about like the as a reader when you're reading this first person narrative it's pretty much stream of consciousness uh 179 sort of Already, you should be like be wary of bias or uh, lack of reliability in a narrator when sort of is one of their go to descriptors for life <laughs> and for how they're they're seeing the world and or how they're feeling. Um, you really have to start questioning what we're being given uh, as a reader. And, but I think at the same time that that very questioning of the narrator is revealing about who who Holden Caulfield is at this point in his life.
0: Yeah, <laughs> he just is so there's like it's like there's nothing concrete in this book <laughs> and it, we say stream of consciousness and it really does feel like, like i mean that, this like is a, not like, like finnegan's river, wake
2: like... <laughs> stream of consciousness it's like there is stream of consciousness that it is impossible to follow you can follow right. what is happening here uh but it's not presented in a traditional narrative form at all
0: yeah but it does feel like you're kind of being s- swept along um, I'd like to talk just for a little bit about his loneliness and isolation. You talked about modernism and and postmodernism and this uh, the traumas of the 20th century, World War One, World War Two, especially the. It just seems it it seems like a symbolic of like the modern condition. <laughs> this just this isolation. It doesn't, I don't know. I just, I don't know that we're getting really any better at communicating and connecting as humans, (laughs) even. Right, so,
2: I mean, there's, uh, things are obviously wildly different. And, you know, Holden Caulfield is isolated in a world that doesn't have ready-made connections. And you can argue that with social media and your ability to like stay connected to everyone that you've ever met, (laughs) you know, you can become Facebook friends. uh, You can do this, version of connection versus isolation, but so much of the heavily mediated nature of what we see on social media and what we choose to put out there versus, and what we choose to interact with allows you to really remain emotionally, socially, uh you know, quite literally isolated, even as you might have this appearance of connections everywhere.
0: Yeah. I mean, talk about authenticity and being a phony.
2: <laughs> social media. <laughs> Right, like, like, yeah. You you take one snapshot of this one bright moment of the day with your kid, and you you know you put that on it, and you you obviously aren't putting you know the the two hour tantrum that the kid had in their room, <laughs> and, yeah, you know, or anything like that.
0: I mean, David Brooks in the New York Times has written a lot recently about just the isolation of American society and and I think Western society in general. Um, I I saw a graph today. It was about. Uh, I was reading about immigrants and refugees and the number of countries with uh with like solid defended borders today would you say higher or lower than 100 years ago
2: Well I want to say it's going to be higher <laughs> but the way you're framing the question <laughs> you think it's going to be lower
0: No it's high it's it's like or, or Many orders of magnitude higher today than it was a hundred years ago. Like our okay. our world, and it's so interesting because we say, "Oh, globalization, everything's so connected." But like the the, and yet our world is becoming more and more fragmented. Okay, I see
2: what you mean now. With the, I, I maybe I was misinterpreting the question, but no, I I completely see what you mean now. All right.
0: Like I mean, if you would have asked me, were, we're our is is our world today? our borders more or less open today than they were a hundred years ago? I would say, oh no. Like the world is also fluid mm-hmm. today. Right. Everybody's yeah. just moving all around the world. And the reality is the exact opposite, that our world is becoming more and more fragmented and isolated, and countries are uh, are separating from each other in really significant ways. Um,
2: but we get this um, surface-level globalization of products and, and yeah. objects and, and media being transported all over the world. But the individuals are are not, I guess.
0: Yeah, and I just I I see Holden and his isolation and loneliness as sort of a
2: I don't know a prophecy. <laughs> well, I mean, when we talk about like the isolation that came after. I, you know, World War I caused, you know, this, this breakdown of trust in institutions and this, this feeling of disconnectedness and, and isolation, right? World War II reinforced that because we had a sequel that was bigger and better than the war to end all wars, right? right? Uh, but, you know, in, in this century, you know, we've had 9-11, we've had these horrible civil wars that are just ongoing and we see atrocities that are being committed that are war crimes, you know, things that the whole world has kind of said, this is so bad, no one can do it. And we see it happening. Uh, yeah. every day and i think the the natural reaction for an individual and also for a nation like after an event like 9/11 is to button up <laughs> it's it's to to hunker down and and say we're we're cutting off everything until we get things sorted out but then the traumas keep coming and so you never get it sorted out enough to open up again
0: i mean you would think that that would be the 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 reaction but but i mean history we have like the un that comes out of world war of world war two that we have the league of nations, league nations after world turns war. into the yeah. turns into the united nations and we get the european union and all of this move toward i, I mean if you would have asked somebody in 1960 what's the world going to look like in 2016 they they may have said something like we'll all just be living in peace and harmony oh, i don't know and that was the height
2: of the cold war todd <laughs> i don't think we were leading to it we were pretty binary at that point
0: but like uh, f- visions of the future
2: yeah, the yeah. utopian vision. I guess like we definitely I mean, there, have there had was, way more dystopic.
0: There was a of the future. there is a utopian utopian version of the future that looked the whole entire world is all living under one government. But man, the way that the world looks today, it doesn't look anything like that.
2: <laughs> but I, I think it's different. Like you said in the '60s, I would say it'd be hard to see that because of the binary. Well, because ages, of the Cold, Cold War. War, sure, yeah, but now it's not a binary. It's more fragmented than a binary. Yeah. And even steps that we've had forward, like you said, the European union, well, then you get Brexit, uh, yeah. you know, happening. So there's kind of this, uh, you know, the fragmentation, like you said, it's just continuing.
0: And Greece and Spain and Ireland falling apart. And
2: <laughs> it's a, it's a we're creepy. not exactly doing great in this U S election to show unity. No, the world. <laughs> no, we aren't. Um, but,
0: so I mean I think that there's a way there's a way to look at catcher in the Rye um, as both this deeply personal manifestation of of one person's post traumatic experience uh, and then also to see it as a precursor to just more <laughs> more isolation, more angst, more violence, more frustration, more inability to hold on to innocence i mean i think our world has become less and less innocent as we
2: as we move on um i just want to say i i always struggle with that idea that we're like worse off than we ever have been because world has a lot of bad history (laughs) I, i think it's just different I don't know that we've lost innocence. Like did we ever really have it when slavery was commonly accepted practice? When- right. <laughs> well, this is the flip side. The flip
0: side of that is to say that's one way to look at this, right? There's one way one lens which, which with which you can look through the world is to say, yeah, we had World War 1 and then we had World War 2 and then we had every other horrible thing that's happened and you, you start to see the world like Holden Caulfield sees the world. Um and there are alternate versions of reality <laughs> that are absolutely equally valid, in which you see uh, good, like hopeful things, and and they don't often get the attention that they should. And beautiful things, like things that are really truly beautiful and inspiring and hopeful, and that's the other thing <laughs> that kind of gets me about. See, seeing catcher in the rye and saying this is you know the most amazing thing and it should every kid in high school should be reading catcher in the rye and i think i hope that our kids are also getting a beautiful hopeful version of the world because it's out there
2: yeah i i agree with that i do even as you say that though i think catcher in the rye is 100% worth engaging with and <laughs> struggling with like he's I, I, I it is not going to be a pleasant read if any of you have not read it and you pick it up don't expect like rainbows and sunshine uh, as you go yeah. through. But I think it's uh, a very fascinating... Uh, like you, Todd, I'm, I'm fine with us having different, different opinions on this. You don't like the prose as much. I love the prose and how much is revealed about Holden Caulfield without it being said about Holden Caulfield. Sure. Uh, you know, that the his view of the world is actually saying more about himself than the world. Yeah. And I think that's a really it's not an easy writing exercise to do. And I think J.D. Salinger nails it. Uh,
0: I don't mean to say that it's, that there's not skill involved in the writing of this book, but I, I I'm, I don't find It's myself, fine for uh, you
2: to not have to be your favorite book. Todd. It doesn't
0: speak. It doesn't speak to me and I'm not like etch, drawn to it.
2: Uh, I find myself more drawn to it every time I've engaged with it. But I think one of my, standard lines of this is people can like what they like and don't like what they don't like i'm i'm not going to try and convince you that you need to like this book (laughs) in (laughs) any way
1: (laughs) well and it's so funny
0: because i mean we talk it seems like we talk about film noir like almost every time we sit down and talk but i really like film noir and darkness talk about (laughs) talk about darkness and depressing but um i don't know it's just it it's I mean, it feels like reading this felt like feels like going to the Guggenheim, which can be a, a beautiful, you know, like a, an interesting experience. But if you give me the Guggenheim or the Prado, I'd go to the Prado. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, in some ways, that I, it kind of is um, like like you you mentioned like the bed versus the Sistine Chapel, or like classic, um, you know, Hudson uh, Valley or Hudson River School American artists who are like doing these almost photographic realistic versions of uh, nature, you know, in America versus Jackson Pollock, like, okay, I can acknowledge that there's more skill, skill involved in the, in, you know, the classic nearly photorealistic art that's there. But when I saw a Jackson Pollock and I used to make fun of Jackson Pollock, uh, when I saw like the one inch by two inch versions in, that were reproduced in our art, yeah. art books, when I saw <laughs> an actual Jackson Pollock in an art museum and like the size and uh, the texture of it and uh, like there's just something to me that that spoke to me more in that moment than the, the, like the normal reproductions of Jackson Pollock that just look like tiny paint splatters. Um, like there, there's a right. size and, and rawness to it that when you see an actual Jackson Pollock in person, um, I saw it in Chicago. And I, like I stood there and I said, wow, I, I never appreciated Jackson Pollock before this moment. And he's doing something breaking with tradition of art forms, uh, breaking with the way that art has always been valued. He's doing something new and different. That is really interesting and says something that can't be said in the other styles. And I'm fine saying the other styles, maybe you can appreciate the artistic merit or or uh, skill of those styles more, but you can't say what Jackson Pollock says in those other art styles. And I think there's something to seeing what J.D. Salinger has to say in Catcher in the Rye that you're not going to find in uh, the other styles of, of novels that maybe we prefer. All right. Well, that listeners, I think is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in iTunes and please leave us a review. It really helps us out. If you're a new listener, uh, just a note about our back catalog. We switched up our format a bit at episode 13 and our first dozen episodes are a bit meandering in discussion and length. But if you like this episode, you should probably still go back all the way to one of those first dozen episodes and check out episode number 9 when we talked about another coming-of-age novel, The House on Mango Street. Um, links to things that we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com and you can find a list of all of our massive and growing back catalog there. You can suggest stories uh, or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com We're also on Twitter at protagonistpod, at Todd K. mac at J. and our producer Andrew is at andrew underscore dorowski our facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast and we have really good conversations there with our listeners so we would love for you to come in like the page and you'll see all our posts and you can engage with any comments that happen there if you'd like to support the show financially we have a couple ways you can do that you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by clicking the support link on our homepage, or just going straight to patreon.com slash protagonist all supporters on patreon receive access to our special quick casts which are shorter episodes in which we break down new newly released films and we're going to have a few more of those coming out uh, in the near future as some films that we're both excited to see are coming out you can also go <laughs> to protagonistpodcast.com slash amazon to make all your amazon purchases just a reminder it looks like regular amazon uh, and it, but it costs you nothing at all but we get a small kickback because you went through our link to make that amazon purchase and finally don't forget to sign up for a 30-day free trial of audible.com by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist thank you again for listening and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story so long so long You could buy a topic for us to discuss, uh, to, you could.